Before coming here this morning, I had a, an automated message from weather.com with, with, with the word emergency. Um, I don't want to make light of anyone who's maybe having a hard time with this storm, but I have to say and confess and admit that having lived in Okinawa, Japan for two years where we had these things called typhoons, it was good news when the storm was reduced to a tropical storm. Um, so if that's what we get here, we'll probably be okay. Um, a little bit of rain, a little bit of weather around here wouldn't be too bad. Uh, we, we, we don't really have a lot of dramatic weather. So brethren, uh, as I think about it time and again, just our going through this matter of the name of the church, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, this has been a very important series, I believe, because it's helping us to ground our thinking and our identity and how we identify ourselves before a watching world. And the world does watch. The world does look at churches and those who profess faith in, in Jesus Christ and they're getting a message by virtue of what we say and what we do as a church. Last couple of weeks I've become aware of the fact that there are a number of churches that have been um, engaging in services whereby they create these themes surrounding movies and so churches will have movie themed services that are based upon some cartoons, some animated films, some drama films, some comedies. One megachurch started a Super Mario's, Super Mario Brothers sermon series and filled the entire church with these uh, props and costumes consistent with the Mario Brothers movie that I guess came out some time ago. It makes me think of Paul and Barnabas when they were ministering the gospel in Lystra. Remember that Paul was preaching the gospel and he healed a man who was lame. And the people saw this and remember they started calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul they were calling Hermes who was one of the Olympian gods who was supposed to be a herald and proclaimer of the deities. They were listening to Paul and they're thinking well maybe he's the proclaimer of the deities. One thing we need to note about what Paul and Barnabas didn't do is, is they didn't start role-playing and saying, let's just go with this thing. We'll just role-play. You be Zeus, I'll be Hermes, and we'll just try to connect and link the gospel to their mythology, kind of relate to the people. Instead, they solemnly tore their robes and cried out saying, why do you do these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from, listen to the language, you should turn from these vain, matayon, these vain things, and turn to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul was a bold preacher. He's talking to people who were heralding and worshipped Zeus and Hermes. And he says, this is vanity. Matayon, it's empty, it's worthless. It's idolatry. 
Well, it's not a very entertaining message, but it's the truth. And Paul loved the people so much that he spoke the truth to them in love. Again, this is one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we think carefully about the name that we bear as a church. We're Sovereign Grace Bible Church. We confess and proclaim the sovereignty of our God. We profess and proclaim the fact that we are redeemed and saved by grace. And we also proclaim the reality of the fact that we have but one firm foundation, and that is the Word of God. That's why we're a Bible church. And the fact that we're a church, well, this is the very thing that we began our discussion on last time. We were talking about what it means to be a church. And so we went to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of a truth. Those three descriptors we mentioned that we're going to be going through. And so we started with the first of the three descriptors. He calls us the household of God. And he, and, and, he, and, and he enjoins us to understand that we have a particular conduct that we are to have as the household of God. So you, he uses the word, the word that is translated as conduct, Strepho, which means to turn. And so it's kind of an interesting term. It's not the word walk, but it's a word that speaks of the idea of turning from one way to another way in a manner that is consistent with a particular decision or choice that we make. And so just as Paul was enjoining the members of the individuals from Lystra to turn from vain things to the living God, we ourselves come to the word of God each and every day and we see that there are things that we need to turn from in terms of our sin and our, our corruption, to the wisdom of God. This is what we're to do. Our conduct needs to be that which is turning constantly towards the way and the wisdom of God. And what's so profound about Paul's use of this word is, is this, is that he said before the Lord redeemed us, he said that we all too formerly lived, and there he uses the same word to speak of the idea of the fact that when we lived in our death march of sin and corruption, we turned according to the impulses of the flesh. So we formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's how we used to make decisions, but now by the grace of God, we turn towards right decisions based upon the leading of the Spirit and the revelation of what God has revealed in his word. That's key. The fact that we're children of God also reminds us of the fact being members of his household, really the inferred idea is, is that we're the children of God, members of his household, members of his family. This reminds us of the fact that we're under the faithful tutelage of a loving Heavenly Father. We're not like the members of the world who are given over to their own sin, as we saw in Psalm 73, where God just actually gives men over to their own appetites. And they have no discipline in their lives. They're not being disciplined by God because God is just saying, you know what? You want that? You want sin? You want corruption? You can have it. Instead, God loves his people. And so he disciplines us for our good so that we would be partakers of his holiness. This is why we looked at very briefly Hebrews chapter 12. And then in relationship to the things that we were looking at, we also looked at the fact that Paul was writing to Timothy in order that he would know and that the church would know how one ought 
how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And we considered why that's such an important word. It's a tiny little word, the word ought. But it's an enormous word by virtue of what it is saying and what the implications are from that term. The word day speaks of the idea of divine obligation. So Paul's not writing to Timothy and saying, hey, I got some suggestions for you. You can take it or leave it. You know, if you think this works for you, it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, just leave it. No. Day. This is how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God. In other words, he's saying in a sense, it's God's house and we go by his rules. That's the overall message. And the one thing, the one point that we didn't really get into because I'm saving it really is the fact that we're members of his household, we're his children. That means that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. So we have a mutual bond that we need to honor and respect and understand. And this is why we need to be engaged in the one, one another's. And so I don't care what a person's socioeconomic status is. I don't care what their position in the world is. I don't care what their age is or what their color is or ethnicity. At the end of the day, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And all those things are in irrelevance. In view of the mutual bond that we have in Christ, We've got a lot more to say about that, so I'm saving that. At the end of the day, in view of all that we looked at last time, we have to understand we are not a social club. We're not a business. We're not a personality cult. And we're not an instrument of governing authorities. We're the church of the living God. And that's our next descriptor that we need to look at. Not only are we the, are the household of God, but we are the church of the living God. And I'm just going to lay out for you the three lessons that we should glean from that descriptor. It, it seems like a very simple descriptor, and it is, but it is loaded when you think about the implications of what is being said here. First of all, the fact that we're the church of the living God... This reminds us of, A, what we are, this is the first point, what we are and how we came into being. This reminds us of what we are and how we came into being. Secondly, the fact that we're the church of the living God reminds us of our place in this world. We have a particular relationship with the world. We need to understand it in view of the fact that we are the church of the living God. And thirdly and finally, this descriptor, the fact that we're the church of the living God, reminds us of what our testimony to this world must be. Brethren, when we talk to others and we speak to others about who we are, what we are, we are confessing that we are members of this called out group, this called out assembly whereby we have been brought together, we've been redeemed, and we've been brought together by the everlasting, ever-living, almighty God who gave us life. This is a powerful message, a powerful identity, and I hope and pray that by God's provision that we will understand this a little bit better here this morning. So let's go to our first point and understand that the church of the living God, the fact that we're the church of the living God, this reminds us of Again, as I said, what we are and how we came into being. Now, I know that you're familiar with the word 
church. And I'm sure you've heard many sermons on the word ecclesia, the word church, and, and what that means. And I do want to unpack that a little bit here. Do you remember the, uh, the children's adage, um, here is the church, you ever do this? Here is the church and here is the steeple. You open the door and here are the people, right? So actually it's here's the building, here's the steeple, open the door and there's the church. The church is not a building. The church is the people, right? So I know that ruins the adage, the childhood adage, but, but that's the reality of things. A church is not a building. The church is the people of God. And so we have to understand this. The word, the very word itself, ekkaleo, ekklesia, comes from the two words, ekkaleo, the, uh, theological dictionary of the New Testament and other lexical works will identify this very important idea. This is the called out group of people, by definition, and ecclesia is a, a group that has been called out, an assembly that has been duly summoned. Now, this is an important idea. We have been duly called or summoned together, and so that raises the question, by whom? There's only one who has called us, and it is the living God. When Peter describes who we are and how we came into being, he refers to us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. And he uses the word kaleo. This is the root word for the word ekklesia who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And later he quotes from a text from Hosea in chapter, Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, where God's people are called the sons of the what? Living God. Only the living God could call us out of darkness and death and make us a people for his own possession. By the way, this is one of the reasons why it was very foundational for us to spend as much time as we did in Ephesians 2 when we were talking about God's grace in saving us. Where were we before the Lord saved us? Paul spends a lot of time and energy explaining to us where we were before he saved us. And he says, you were dead, using a participle, speaking of the perpetual nature of what we were doing. What were we doing? We're marching around in a death march. You were being literally dead in your trespasses and sins. That's where we were. We were spiritually dead. Remember we talked about the fact that it's not just Thanatos. We didn't recently die and just the body's still warm. We were necros. There's decay going on. There's a stench that goes up to heaven. Nothing commendable within us, nothing that would commend us to God, we were lost, we were condemned, we were the children of wrath. And then he gets to that beautiful adversative, but God. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, there he repeats it again, made us what? Alive, together with Christ. Who are we? And how, do, how were we brought together? We were brought together by the almighty living God. 
Remember when we went through John 1.1? I feel guilty because I summarize a lot of texts. I've been summarizing a lot of passages for us here. I feel guilty because there's so much more in all of these passages. But remember when we went through John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was ain prostantheon, face to face with God. And the Word was ain God. So that imperfect linking verb, ain, means that in perpetuity, the eternal son always was. He was always face to face with the father, and he always has been God by the essence of his nature. These are key principles. You know where that verb appears next? In verse 4, in him was life. In him was was life perpetually God is the living God he doesn't just have life as some possession he is life by nature always has been and ever shall be the living God this is why I say to you the identity of our Lord as being the living God is a key and foundational identity And it is one that really underscores our understanding of who we are and how we came into being. And this is why James says in James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he begat us, is the King James. Or he brought us forth, is the New American Standard. He brought us forth, he begat us by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. God birthed us. He brought us into being, and he did so by his omnipotent power and capacity to give life. Brethren, we serve a risen Savior. Remember the message of the angel? He's not here. He is risen just as he said. The grave could not keep him down. The source of all life cannot be destroyed. We serve a risen, living Savior who's coming again. And brethren, this, is, this formulates the foundation of our message to the lost. Remember how it is that in John 10, 18, Jesus asserted his absolute authority over life, even his own, where he said, using the word of absolute authority and power, he said, I lay down my life on my own initiative. I have authority, exousion, authority to lay it down, or we could say power and authority, and I have authority, exousion, power and authority to to take it up again. Of course he does. He's the Lord of life, you see. Brethren, the thing that we have to understand is, is that we were dead. Spiritually necrotic, necrotically dead. Corporately, we're being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 2.22. Individually, as the bricks of that building, the Lord is redeeming his people and he gives us the Holy Spirit, regenerates us, and gives us the Holy Spirit, sealing us with the Holy Spirit so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who saved us. 
So when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The life that I have, is it's not my own. It's his, and he made me alive. And it is by the indwelling Holy Spirit that I now live for him rather than for myself. It is the living God who has redeemed me. And also he says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New. Because of the power of the life that he gives. So it is by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, that we have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. None of these things are native to human flesh. All of this is evidence of this thing called life, new life, eternal life. You know, when I was a young believer, I remember getting a little confused about some of these subjects, and there were a lot of people that I spent time with where they talked about eternal life like as if it was just a ticket to get you into heaven, but that eternal life really has no impact on the individual's life in the here and now. That is such an alien concept to scripture. That's why I talked about the dangers of the hyper grace teaching that really popularizes this idea. It's like, well, you know, the Lord will give you eternal life and you'll go to heaven, but you may just live as a reprobate and even rebel against him and even deny him, but you're still a Christian. I have no idea how to reconcile that with scripture. Scripture tells us and teaches us that now that we are redeemed, having the Holy Spirit dwell in us, we're now being transformed by God's work of grace. And so we're being brought into greater conformity with his holiness. And that is what is giving him glory through the individual lives of the Christians and corporately as the church, the church of the living God. So the fact that we're the church of the living God, this does inform us about what we are and how we came into being. We need to think about this. We need to talk to other people about why we are the church of the living God. Now to the second point. The fact that we're the church of the living God ought to remind us of our place in this world. We are not called and summoned to assemble by secular society. By the way, secular society has its own religion. It has its own places of assembly. There are some who worship political agendas. Many worship the environment. Environmentalism, by the way, as you know, this has become a religion. It's become a cult in many respects. By the way, I, I ought to confess and, and, and ask for your forgiveness. It turns out that the second Sunday I was here happened to be Earth Day. Did you know that? The second Sunday I was here, it was Earth Day. And I, I, I don't know, I just, I, I, I blew it. Um, I, you know what I should have done? I could have preached 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 
where the Lord promises to destroy the present heavens and the earth. I mean, that, you know, I don't know if that would have satisfied the environmentalists, but uh, that would have been an Earth Day message, I guess. I had the audacity to preach on the subject of God's jealousy for his glory. And by the way, he'll be glorified when he destroys the present heavens and the earth, right? But we all know this. Environmentalism is now a religion. If you don't bow the knee to the environmentalist agenda, then you're just a bad person. The secular world, the business world, it's becoming a mouthpiece for all kinds of ideologies. And they're not just selling products anymore. They're now selling these bizarre ideologies that they expect for you to embrace and accept. We're not called together by any celebrity, whether secular or evangelical. We're not summoned together by governing authorities. If governing authorities had their way, we would never assemble. They would just rather that we cease from assembly, fold up our tents, and go home. And they tried that recently. Brethren, we're the church of the living God. And we have to forsake all these other idols that are around us. It's here that I have to say that when we see that moniker, living God, we must understand that this is a a title for God that we see elsewhere in Scripture, repeatedly in Scripture, And it is a a title that helps us to distinguish between who God is and all the other idols that we find in this world. And so Matthew Henry is right when he comments on 1 Timothy 3.15, indicating that the title, the Church of the Living God, speaks of the true God in opposition to false gods, dumb and dead idols. He's right. Because, as I said, throughout Scripture, we often see the, I, the title of God as being the living God in contrast to the idols of this world. I just mentioned one example in Acts 14, where Paul tells the, 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 the members of Lystra to turn from their idolatry, from, from turning from their mythology of Zeus and Hermes to trust in and, 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 and believe in the living God. Go from one to the other is his message. Forsake these idols. And so in Jeremiah chapter 10, as we had in our scripture reading, we find the Lord rebuking the idols found in Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them, for the custom of the peoples are delusion Because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. For they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. And then comes the rebuke against these things. In Jeremiah 10.8, it says this, They are altogether stupid. 
and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. And then in verse 14 it says, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They're not alive. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. And this is where the contrasting adversative comes. But, verse 10. You know, one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of the NIV translation is they take out 50% of the conjunctions and adversatives in the Old Testament. Don't take those out. We need this adversative here, just like we needed it in Ephesians 2.4. But God being rich in mercy... Against the backdrop of all the idolatry that we see, we see this adversative in verse 10 in Jeremiah 10, but, there's all this stuff, but God. But the Lord is the true God. He is Elohim Hayim, the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And this is where it is said in verse 6, there is none like thee, O Lord, thou art great, And great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of the nations? By the way, that very sentiment is repeated in Revelation 15 and verse 4. Look it up later. Indeed, it is thy due for among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like thee. And again, I know I've said this before, but this is why I prefer the name Michael. Don't call me Mike. No offense, but Michael, Mikael, who is like El? That question is answered twice in this text. There is none like our God. None. You know, the language that is employed in Jeremiah 10 is strong. The idols and the idol makers are called foolish and stupid. But mark this. Strong language is needed to describe sin for what it is. James, when he rebukes his readers, he calls them adulteresses. Why? Because they were pursuing the idols of this world, and he tells them, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You go that way, and you're being an an idolater, you're being an adulteress, you're being a fool. And so the language, the strong language to which I refer, when the idol makers and their idols are called stupid and foolish, the word foolish is the Hebrew word kessel, which is repeatedly used in the Old Testament. And it speaks of of the idea of a person being really open-minded. I remember seeing a shirt that talked about somebody being so open-minded that their, their brains fell out. You know, it's kind of, that's actually a good way of thinking of the word Kessel because it bears this idea of someone who basically believes everything. If you believe that 2 plus 2 is 4 and that 2 plus 2 is 5, which we're now hearing about in the news, then you really don't believe anything. You've now taken all logic, all reason, and you've just thrown it out the window. Somebody who believes everything really believes in nothing. The other word, stupid, ba'ar, speaks of a brute or a beast, someone who conducts themselves like an animal. 
And so they're not operating on the basis of sound reasoning. They're just kind of operating on the, on the impulses of their feelings and their flesh. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word moros, moron. Folks, I'm not advocating that you go around calling people these names, but we have to call sin what it is, and we need to help people understand that this stuff is moronic. And by the way, that's another word that, we, that is often used as kind of a, a mindless pejorative, but a moros, a moron, is someone who occupies an adult body but has the mind of an infant or conducts themselves like a beast. Again, like the Hebrew word ba'ar. Why is this important? It's important because we need to see idolatry for what it is. And we need to see and understand that it stands in strong contrast to the reality of the living God. You have the living God on one side, and that is reality. Then you have all the mythological craziness that is created by the sons of men. Whatever their philosophies, their ideologies, whatever it is that they're pursuing, if it's not the pursuit of the living God, then it is categorically idolatry. And it is stupid, it is foolish, it is blasphemous. By the way, we don't have men and women that I know of anyway creating figurines made out of wood and silver and gold and prostrating themselves before them. But that doesn't mean we don't have idolatry. Just because you don't have a figurine in front of you doesn't mean that you're free and clear of idolatry. The core idea of idolatry is that men in their corruption of heart and mind vainly imagine that they can form gods with their own hands dead and lifeless idols that can somehow serve them better than the almighty, everlasting, and living God can. Brethren, this is the definition of insanity. This is what is in the heart of every human being by nature, by flesh and nature. Such people who engage in such idolatry, sometimes they can be some of the most educated people, people of power, people of great authority. It doesn't matter. They could be very poor. In the end, you're either investing your life in the living God or you're not. It's a twofold categorical reality. And we have to understand that. Why? Because when we say that we are the church of the living God, we're making that distinction that is made in Scripture. There is just the living God and then everything else. And nothing compares to him. Nothing can compare to him. And as to our third point, the fact that we're the church of the living God reminds us of what our testimony is to this world. Again, Peter says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us, called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. And again, he later quotes from Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, which includes in Hosea chapter 1 the idea of our being sons of the living God. That's our testimony. We're proclaiming the excellencies of him who, kaleo, 
We're the ecclesia of the living God. He has called us. He has summoned us. We're here. We're alive as, as Christians. We have the, the eternal life that was given to us by our Lord, and we are assembled together in his name, knowing and understanding that he is the living God. And this is a part of our great testimony to this lost and dying world. There is no other hope, in other words. There is no other savior. There is no other ideology or religion that can save mere mortals. Christ alone is our hope. And so our testimony is the testimony of Jesus, who said, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living, living water. John parenthetically reminds us of the fact that Jesus was speaking of the Spirit who had not yet been given. The Spirit of God dwells in us. Life has been imparted to us. We're no longer dead. And we have this privilege of having the rivers of living water flowing through us by the work of God. So we've been brought from death to life from darkness to light, from our own hedonistic and selfish desires and pleasures to this privilege of loving God and loving our neighbor. And mark this, only the almighty, everlasting, ever-living God could accomplish such a miracle of divine grace. Brethren, we are confessing before the world that regeneration is a miracle. And it is a miracle that only God can perform. We're not people who are trying to climb a ladder to heaven and we're trying to get better by our own effort and strength. No, we're confessing that we are incapable of entering into heaven because we fall short of God's glory and stand condemned because of our own sin. Our only hope is in the living God, in our Savior who has risen and who's coming again. Next week, we're going to finish this section talking about how it is that we are the pillar in support of the truth. In my own vanity, I thought I would just make this entire section one sermon. Boys, I get rebuked during the week as I'm studying. It's a blessed rebuke. It's sanctifying, but it's good. Brethren, wrapping up this morning, let me just offer a few exhortations and let's consider a few implications of what we're looking at here this morning. As I said before, the eternal life that we have is not just a ticket to heaven where we just leapfrog over this matter of how we live in this life. The eternal life that we have is something that we possess now, and we will have it forever into, into eternal glory. But between now and then, God is forming and fashioning within us Christ-likeness. This is his work, and this is the work of the everlasting living God. This is why Paul says that we are to be seen by the world as blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
among whom you appear as lights in the world. And what are we doing? We're holding fast the word of life. Where do we appear as lights in the world? Why? Because this world is filled with darkness. Antecedent to that, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You find yourself grumbling in the presence of other people, repent of it. Find yourself having a bad attitude or conducting yourself in a way that is that dishonors God, saying things that dishonor the Lord, repent of it. We're not telling people we're perfect. None of us are. But our message is, is that the living God is transforming us. And he loves us so much so as to bring us conviction in our hearts when we do sin. Because again, unlike those described in Psalm 73 who were given over to their sin, Our Lord lovingly, as our Heavenly Father, rebukes us and corrects us and brings the trials and tribulations necessary for our life so that we would, in fact, be more like him. Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers, said this. He said, you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. People should be able to get to know us and read the letter and see that the gospel is central to our message. And our, you know, I hear people talk about my story, my story, my story. Let our story be the gospel. Let our story be that God has brought life to us, whereas we were dead Because that is our story if we're Christians at all. Secondly, and I touched on this last time, but there's a danger that comes, brethren, by just learning doctrine and thinking that this is enough. The church at Ephesus, remember, in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord commended because they had discernment They had the doctrinal wherewithal to spot false apostles and to call them out for their falsehoods. That takes good doctrinal knowledge and discernment. But the fact that they had lost their, have left their first love, this is, what a horrifying rebuke that is. What a terrifying rebuke that is. Learning doctrine, filling the mind with knowledge, is not an end in and of itself. It's not the sine qua non of everything. The doctrine that we learn needs to be transformative such that our hearts, our minds, our lives are being renewed by it. Brethren, we're not parrots who just memorize words and repeat them. But as I said before, we're being transformed. And so as we speak to other people, Let us share the doctrine of Scripture. And when they see our imperfections and our sin, don't don't pretend that it's not there. I always tell parents, you know, the the worst thing you can do with your kids is just pretend that you got everything wired and everything's perfect. Because they know better. 
when you sin, what you do is you say, I serve the Lord who gave me the promise that if, whenever I sin, if I confess my sin to him, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin. That's what my living Lord has promised to me. And that's the promise on which I stand and rest and live. Brethren, I would say to you that many people bear, bear the burden of guilt and shame some people don't have any shame, but there are those, as you speak to them, they'll understand that somehow there's something wrong in their life, and they bear a burden that's on their back, and the only message that we need to be giving them is not to improve their life and tr try to pursue some sort of moralistic pathway that'll make things better. No, the only thing that can remove that burden on their back is the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified on the cross and risen from the dead as the living God. That's our message. And finally, the best way for us to spend our days destroying idols is by fixing our eyes on Jesus. There's not a better way. It's not by becoming experts on idolatry and the way in which people engage in idolatry. No, we're to be experts on the glory of the one who redeemed us. That we would love him above all and that from day to day we would fix our eyes on Jesus. And considering the beauty here of these words, fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, Thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. What a powerful and wonderful confession that is. He and he alone is the one that we're to seek and cherish from day to day. So let's stand together. Hymn number 88, if you would like to use the hymnal, it's hymn number 88. Let's sing, Ferris, Lord Jesus.
precious Heavenly Father, grant us grace to cherish Christ more and more each day, to cherish the great work that he accomplished on the cross, whereby he declared it is finished. We confess it is the finished work upon which our souls rest. Father, we, are, we confess that you indeed are the living God and that we by grace are the church of the living God. Lord, may we contemplate the beauty of what this means and may we take the truths that we have learned here this morning and take them to others and speak to them about the privilege of being members of the church of the living God. Father, we thank you for all that we have been learning. We pray that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we search through the scriptures. We pray that the Spirit of God would take the living word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. May it perform whatever surgery is needed in our lives so that we would be sanctified and conformed all the more to the image and likeness of Christ. Bless us now throughout this day, and grant us grace, Lord, to honor you as your children. For we ask it in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a blessed day.